It is February 17, 2013, uh, the last Sunday before a bunch of us are going to head off to India. India is known as a land of a million gods. India is a land in need of God. I mean, seriously in need of God. But then when you get right down to it, America is too, isn't it? I'd like to talk to you about our state of affairs. Turn with me to the book of Judges. We will start in Judges and we are likely to finish in the book of Judges today. So uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. When you get to Judges, turn all the way to your almost hit Ruth. When you hit Ruth, back up one verse and that's where we are at. Say there when you are there. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Our message title today is, As You See Fit. The strangest period in Israel's time, by far. I mean, the stories that you just shudder to have new Christians read are found in the book of Judges. And I can always tell when people sur surpass the 17th chapter and make it into the 18th or 19th, because I get, I get phone calls. And they say, hey, well, what is going on with this story? I would like to tell you that when people cast off the authority structure of God, there is no limit to the depravity that you can find. This is not just true in the ancient world, it's true in our world. But sometimes when we look at something as an example, it helps us to see a little bit of ourselves. So I'm going to run through some history with you today. Now as soon as I say that, it could be that you slouch down in your chair did you go back to sleep because that's what you did in high school or college history? I would tell you that this is not the kind of thing that you'll easily find in a textbook. It is in textbooks. I've got to get them in my office. Having said that, this is the kind of thing that if you have eyes to see, you will catch a spiritual implication. So I would never share history with you for the sake of history. I believe history is his story. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. The Bible did not take place in a vacuum. Jesus was not born in the midst of a manger setting in your uh, curio cabinet. <laughs> he was born in a rich milieu of culture. All around him were signs and symbols and types and political slogans and all of those things just like today. Something that happened just prior to his birth was in 42 B.C., Julius Caesar was deified. Now that doesn't mean much to us. To us, Caesar is a dressing on a salad. <laughs> Ironically, that came out of Mexico. Every good food came out of Mexico. <laughs> but when he was deified in 42 B.C., it started something. It started a cult of emperor worship. What happened is a... A sighting of a comet in the same year that he died caused people to say that he ascended into the heavens. Now, just like today, if somebody told you that one of our presidents, whichever one you might have coming to mind at the moment, was a Messiah-like figure, most people are probably not going to believe that. But if you say something long enough, loud enough, it does begin to catch on, especially in the generations to come. So most people probably thought that this was just political entertainment, but as time went on, it caught on in the culture. 
Augustus Caesar, formerly called Octavian, those of you that like to read Shakespeare, and I know there's just an overwhelming number of you who are doing that, he shows up as Octavian in William Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, was in power when Jesus was born. He ran from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. Now, because he was Julius Caesar's heir, they referred to him as something. It's an amazing thing. They referred to him as the son of God. This is how Roman coins were minted. It's how the billboards of the day, the Orioles, referred to him. And it was said that his birth ushered in universal peace. If you wanted to say that in Latin, you would say it as Catholic peace. The idea was that the birth of Augustus Caesar would change the world. So he ordered that his birth would be celebrated. Anybody want to guess when his birth was? He's a December baby. And so they decided to celebrate his birth with 12 very special days. They called it the advent of the August one, the revered one. So Romans, all over the Roman world, just before the time of Jesus, in December, were worshiping an emperor, giving him 12 days of special glory, and giving gifts to one another because he was born and bringing universal peace. The saying of the day, which you can still find in museums printed on the backside of coins from that era, is there is no name save Augustus by which men can be saved. The thing that I found the most intriguing, a guy named Ethel Stauerbaum writes about this, and I know all of you want to go research this in your off time. He said that among all of the Roman emperors' cult of worship, Augustus really took it to a new level because he popularized the purchase of forgiveness of sins. Another way to say that would be buying of indulgences. And what happened when this happened is Romans, just like Americans, loved to sin. And you mean that there would be specially governmentally set up approved places where we could go and find priests dressed all in white and we could pay them a fee and absolve ourselves of sin? Oh my goodness, he was worshipped. He was worshipped now. Whether it was political or it was spiritual made no difference. The people were worshipping him. Now, Augustus and Tiberius, his successor, they reigned during most of the time that Jesus was alive. After this, though, we went from Caligula to Claudius to Nero, Galba, Otho, uh, all the way down through Vespasian. In a period of only 42 years, there were seven emperors. Can you imagine what that must have been like? To go through 40 years. I'm not quite 40 years old, but I look it. And um, can you imagine if in my lifetime we had had 42 presidents, right? I mean, since our country's founding, we're in the 40s for presidents. Much less in a single lifetime. What kind of turmoil would there be? Now, what this did to the Roman people is it made them disenchanted with their government. And it was a sharp contrast between the Roman emperors who came and went and said they were gods and the claims of a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth who they said had resurrected to live eternally. This gave uh, an open door, a cultural avenue for the gospel to move forward. It didn't stop the cult of emperor worship. 
But suddenly in the Roman Empire, there was an alternative being offered by Jews. Now there's one more thing that I need to tell you before we move forward. Ephesus was something of a, a New York of the ancient world. By ancient standards, if you had 50,000 people in a city, it was a major metropolis. Today, that's, you know, Angleton or something, right? Y'all even heard of that place? It's Bunky, Louisiana. It's cut off Louisiana. I don't it didn't have 50,000 people. It had 500,000 people. It's among the largest of the ancient population centers. And for that reason, lots of biblical events happened there. It was there in Acts 19 that Paul did battle with a virginal goddess who had a celibate priesthood that worshipped her. And the whole city chanted for two hours, great is Artemis, or your Bible might say Diana, goddess of the Ephesians. You can go to Ephesus today and in the layers of the soil, you can see where Artemis suddenly appeared in history holding a baby. Interesting, Carl. Oh, the methods of worship may change, but the spirits that are being worshipped almost never change. This is where Paul gave his warning to the Ephesian elders. Savage wolves are going to rise from within your own midst and devour some of you. This is also where the church council met in 431 and declared Mary to be the mother of God. Amazing. It's almost like Paul could sense something was going to happen. Paul's protege, Timothy, was stationed in Ephesus. This is where he was given the directive, fight the good fight, command certain men not to teach certain doctrines. But mark this, in the last days there will be terrible times. It's almost as if something was happening in the heavens that would affect the earth in Ephesus. The early church historian Eusebius tells us that this is where John spent his last days. When he would lean on his staff and tell the brothers, love one another. And you heard this from another pastor in our midst. Said, don't you have anything else to say, John? Well, when you do what I told you first, then I will give you something new, he would say. Why did so much of the early church powerhouse leadership show up in Ephesus? Irenaeus tells us that John frequently battled a group that he called the Nicolaitans. They show up in the book of Revelation. These were men who abandoned the law, taught a separation between clergy and laity, and were sexually immoral, and yet they were passing themselves off as believers. Good thing that the world has rid itself of all such people that are believers, but are sexually immoral. Good thing we don't have those problems anymore. If you don't easily recognize sarcasm, you're about to get a crash course in it. I would like to tell you that in the cult of emperor worship, the guy that stands hand and tails above everyone else is a man named Domitian. He was emperor from 81 to 96 AD. His neo-chorus, or his world headquarters, was in Ephesus. It seems that his father Vespasian had set up a throne for himself there, and Domitian wanted to take it one further. So he put his throne on top of his father's throne and built a pantheon of 24 Greek gods under him as the platform to stand on. This way, when they addressed him as Lord of Lord and King of Kings, there would be a visual representation to show that. Now, why on earth would I go through all of those things? Did he like to be addressed as my Lord and my God? That his official Roman letters to providences said, Your Lord and your God commands you. Why would I go through these kind of things? Because in Ephesus, there's a picture on your screen. 
Now, I know to you this looks like just columns and stones, but in the ancient world, this was Walmart. It's called an agora, not an algor, an agora. This had nothing to do with hugging trees or hybrid cars. It had everything to do with where you had to buy and sell. And Agora is an ancient marketplace. And of all the ones that are preserved from the first century, this is one of the better preserved ones. And do you know what you can find at the entrances to the Agora? You can find stations where it was required of you to worship Domitian. You had to declare him Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Or you could not go into the marketplace in Ephesus and buy or sell. Now, if you couldn't go into Walmart without, without declaring that Thomas Jefferson was Lord and King, would you go into Walmart? What if there was only one place you could buy stuff in town? They say that the church in Ephesus spent six months at a time underground, scavenging for food, developing conditions because they could not get into the presence of light. They were so heavily hunted. Of course, 100 years after Domitian died, Ephesus was 90% Christian. Because a church that is persecuted is a powerful church. A church that risks something for the gospel is a powerful church. If you want to kill the church, you don't persecute it. You allow it to become affluent. So there remains a problem in the ancient world. We didn't have ID bracelets. There was no scan in, scan out. No tag in, tag out. How are you to know who entered the Agora properly? By declaring Domitian as Lord, and who simply snuck in because they wanted to buy food. How could you know something like that? Well, when you ate the food sacrificed to him as an idol, and when you made your offering, there were ashes. And it seems that the easiest thing to do was put the mark of Domitian on your head or your hand by way of ashes. And then everyone would know that you had the right to buy or sell in the marketplace. Isn't that an interesting story? Yeah. You know, I bring this up because I like to eat at Taco Cabana. Yeah. Are there any Taco Cabana fans? I'm just telling you that Salsa Verde. Look, that's all we can say, Salsa Verde. It's fun to say, too, Salsa Verde. I was in Taco Cabana, and because we're pastors and we don't keep any kind of regular hours, it was about 2 a.m., and the man was standing there, and I wanted to go clean off his forehead. I mean, poor guy. He'd been, he'd been working on something. I mean, I don't know what happened, because somehow or another, he had Domitian's mark on his head. It was Ash Wednesday. And I didn't know it. I preached a whole message here about the power of the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost didn't tell me it was important that we go put Domitian's mark on our head. I don't know why. That's why it's from the wrong spirit. It's from the Antichrist spirit. It is today, and it always has been. Now, I come from South Louisiana. This is such a popular message there. The area that I come from is most famous worldwide for Mardi Gras. We started with a French lesson today. We told you what Tmall meant. Might as well tell you what Mardi Gras means. Mardi Gras is French for Fat Tuesday. And the idea here is that somewhere around January 6th, they, uh, they estimate in their liturgical calendar that this is about the time that Jesus revealed himself as God. And then, as we move forward from that event, the next thing would be a Fat Tuesday, a day where you ate all of the best 
Uh, this usually occurs in February or March. This year it was February 3rd, 10th, 12th, something. 12th. You eat all the best of the lamb because the day after, on Ash Wednesday, you're going to consecrate yourself to Jesus. And for six weeks, some 40 days, you're going to practice what is called by some Lent. To meet Lent is something that can be scraped out of the dryer. To other folks, Lent is something altogether different. Why would I bring something like this up? When every man does as he sees fit, when we have no real king but elect our own, I don't know, we could even call him father. How would you say that in Latin? Can those guys retire? Apparently so, huh? First time in 600 years. The vigor of Christ retired. That's an amazing thing. I wasn't aware that men of God could retire. I thought we simply transferred to the kingdom. Wow, this sounds incredibly Protestant today. You have no idea, friends, when a fifth of the world's population is indulging in something like Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday. What is the premise? What is... What is the basic understanding? Well, what city in all of the world is best known for Mardi Gras? Somebody tell me. I forgot. New Orleans. New Orleans. And what do they call that city? The Big Easy. Easy what? Oh, it's the Big Easy Sin. And the slogan for the city, Les le bon temps roulet. Huh? I get a close, Matthew? I heard it a few times. What was that? Let the good times roll. Hey, let's sin all can and then later at some appointed time in the future when we decide we'll give ourselves to Christ in the same way that Romans gave themselves to Domitian. I wonder if that was born of the Holy Ghost or not. Well, we could look at the fruit on the tree. How many men were burned simply for loving the word? You know, our high school used to play the Jesuits. What an interesting thing. A counter-reformation force. Built to kill those who love the word. And now we name our high schools after them. I simply wanted to tell you that times are not so different today as they were in the ancient world. Do you know what the very first crew, crews are what you call your parades in the societies that produced the parades for Mardi Gras? The very first crew for Mardi Gras very first one ever formed officially. It's the crew of Comus. Comus is a Greek god of excess. He's the cupbearer to Bacchus, the god of depravity and drunkenness. But the church blesses this. That is where it started, friends. Things that are sinful. Over time, do they become more or less sinful? This article that is on the screen closes with the words, in the 21st century, with the advancement of technology, <laughs> New Orleans is world famous during Mardi Gras for the exposing of women's breasts and the expectation of receiving beads. Because we all know how valuable those plastic beads are, right? Maybe it's something more. Maybe when we choose colors of green, gold, and purple, colors that are associated green with life in the Bible, Everlasting life, actually. Purple, majesty, gold, divinity. Maybe when we choose those and we stand at a parade named after foreign gods and we raise our hands in expectation. 
hoping to receive something. Offering to give of our flesh to receive something. Maybe what we actually have is a counterfeit spirit. See, we don't have to look into the eye of Domitian anymore. The same Antichrist spirit is in the world today and always has been. And you don't have to travel as far as India to find this kind of godless depravity. You can find it right here. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10. In 1 Corinthians 10, we see a warning that I think is a warning for our time as much as it was a warning for their time. Don't you love that the Bible is ageless? 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Sounds like... They were saved. We're eating heavenly food. If we're drinking heavenly drink. If we're participating in Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with a few of them. God was not pleased with what? Come on, say it out loud. Wake up, saints. God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us, say us, from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by a destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. As warnings for us. On whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think that you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. This was a word of God written by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost to people who have received the same thing as most of you have. A warning that said, do not do these things. So, well, Pastor, I'm all good. There was no ashes on my forehead. How about a love for the world? In the things of the world. It's a good thing that the church is not overrun with a love for the world today. Charlie, an elder in our church, Charles Brown, forwarded me an article that talked about Christian sex symbols who speak in other tongues. In Charisma magazine. We have swallowed a gospel that we are the center of. It's about us. It's for us. It makes us new, improved, better uses. Leonard Ravenhill once famously said, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not take sinners and make them better men. It takes dead men and makes them live. I want to encourage you that we are to die to the things of the world. The Lord has something so much better for us than false forms of worship. And the fact that in this very city, we have the largest abortion clinic that we still offer our babies to mold that is disgusting. 
the fact that in our city, we still give our sons and daughters to a sex trade is disgusting. And we're world famous for it. More traffic through the port of Houston than anywhere else in the world. And we also have the largest church in the United States. What do you do, saints? What do you do when evil and righteousness, at least those who are supposed to be righteous, shake hands and kiss in the street? What do you do? Oh, I think you must protest. This is a dire warning in the scripture. It reminds me of Luke 21, 34. It says it this way. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the earth. Be always on the watch. And pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen. And that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. There is a flood of dissipation, friends. First Peter speaks of it. In the fourth chapter and third verse, he says, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Living in debauchery. By the way, that word comes from the god Bacchus. Lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. What an interesting, strange way that I have found such conviction in this verse. They think it's strange that you don't plunge into the sewer of vice with them, this says. And they do what? Heap abuse on you. Let me ask you, church, how abused by the world are you? Most of us are just trying to get along, you know. Most of us are just trying to go to work, get our paycheck, drop a little change in the offering box, say that we have a service for God. You know, we're good people. We keep our grass cut. The Homeowners Association likes us. We are supposed to be so contrary to the spirit of the world. So absolutely diametrically opposed to the spirit of the world. That they would heap abuse upon us. Because our very presence in their midst convicts them of sin. Read about men like Charles Finney that passed through a town on a train and revival broke out. Men sat next to him and without him speaking said, Sir, I am convicted of sin in your presence. Because he walked with the Lord and hated sin. Isn't it worth asking the modern church, do you actually hate sin? Or are you comfortable to lie down next to it? Do you actually hate the things of the world that crucified our Lord? Or do we secretly love them? Israel found himself in such a position. In Isaiah 57, it speaks of them secretly taking idols into their bedrooms. Anybody hung a television set in your bedroom? Watch Hell's box office in there? Got Cinemax streaming right into your house? Oh, there's no way to build a church preaching against TV, Pastor. <laughs> no, we could give away donuts and tell you you're champions. And if we did that, you a 
us and love us like feeding fish. Or rather like feeding goats. <laughs> My heart's desire, saints, is that we could develop a heart like God. And I find myself more and more in my prayer time reduced to tears. It's not because I'm hopeless. It's not because I don't see the glory of God manifesting around us. It's because I see the people that can stand next to the glory of God manifesting around us and be happy and content to continue to go their own way. What a dangerous situation. I want to tell you that where we will go in India, this is not the case. The distinction between light and dark is so stark that you either stand against the gospel or you are advancing the gospel. There is no one that's content simply to possess the gospel and live like the world. Because they kill you for being a Christian. Your family members might drag you out of your house and beat you in the public square. Did anybody in here come to know the Lord that way? Maybe it's why the Indian Christians often have chapters of the Bible memorized. Maybe it's why the Indian Christians focus on purity and holiness. Saints, I didn't wake up this morning and say, Oh, Jesus, please give me a chance to beat them up. But as a pastor, my days are not filled with preaching. You know what they're filled with? Counseling. And you know what almost all counseling is? It's someone sitting across from me justifying their sin to me and hoping that I will defend the Bible. They're telling me in not so many words why their situation is unique. And the Bible really does not apply to them. And you say things like, tell me, have you been the priest in your home? Have you been doing these things? Well, no, I know to do those things, but I have not been doing them. And then you wonder why you get the harvest that you get. We pray for revival very well in this church. But if we do not live revival lives, then what would it be besides entertainment? We could sell tickets to it for a while. Maybe put a video on Amazon that impresses the world. But at the end of the day, do we do harm to the kingdom or do we advance it if our lives do not match our rhetoric? I am interested in the holiness of the body. Whether you showed up on a bus, you showed up on a bike, or you showed up in a new suburban, I am interested in the holiness of the body because the spirit that we call the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, He is pure holiness. And we cannot ask Him to bless us while we have leprosy spiritually. Amen. Do you know that leprosy was such a foul disease? It was so sick, so disgusting, that in the United States we formed colonies and built walls and shipped them off. The only place in all of Louisiana, where I'm from, that you can actually physically lay eyes on someone with leprosy is Carterville, Louisiana. And you can't even get there from here. You have to start somewhere else. You ask for direction and no one knows because they haven't been there. I actually have the distinction of having gotten a speeding ticket in Carville, Louisiana. Well, I didn't even know the road was paved, much less the assignment. That perceived, friends. In the Older Testament, when we began to look at something like leprosy, you find such verses as Leviticus 13. 
45. The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes. Let his hair be unkempt. Cover the lower part of his face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as he has had the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. Doesn't that sound harsh? Doesn't it sound mean? You can be honest, it's church, don't lie. Does it sound mean? The thing about leprosy, actually the biblical word for leprosy, means smitten. And not in the Valentine sense. I'm smitten with you. Smitten is having been scourged, having been stricken. Leprosy was considered to be something that made you marked. And no one else wanted what you had. This was a very visual representation of what sin does. When you are so riddled with sin that you are carrying around and decaying flesh all of the time, when it is your master and your defining feature, oh man, you know a leper is missing the nose. He's missing ears. Very few of you in the room have even seen a picture of such a thing. Some of you in the room have actually seen them restored that have. It's the kind of thing that the human body shrinks from. It's hard to look at even for medical students. This was to be a very visual representation of how we were to treat sin. And we have laid down right next to it. We've become bedfellows with something more dangerous than others. The only answer for leprosy was quarantine it. Beg God to heal you. And in the sand, leprosy, we don't even acknowledge it in the church. We sweep it under the rug. I threw someone out of this church body last week because they had something worse than leprosy. It's a rare disease. You can't find it anywhere. It's called sin. It's everywhere, and yet no one points to it when they see it. They all talk about it occurring somewhere else, but they don't know anybody that actually has it. church of the living God must be first and foremost holy. If you believe that you can invoke a blessing upon yourself while going your own way, you need to know that the Lord says He will never be willing to forgive you. I didn't say that. The book of Deuteronomy says it. He will never forgive the man that persists in going his own way and invokes a blessing upon himself. I believe the Lord has better than that for this body. I don't believe that we are to be a leper colony. I think that I read somewhere in this holy book that we are to be a kingdom of priests. Friends, if we knew our actual condition, if we had the poverty of spirit that was preached about two Wednesdays ago, We would tear our clothes at the altar and beg God to forgive us. But instead, during our prayer time, we mostly sit in our seats with our head between our knees. Barely able to stir a passion that causes us to rise to our feet. You have to ask, what happens to us? How could this be the church of the living God? This is what happens 
when someone is sick. You take a world-class athlete. You can take Muhammad Ali in his prime. And I would box him if he had the flu. You give him something worse. Give him, give him AIDS in an advanced setting. Then we could let Judah box him. It doesn't matter what you're called to be. It doesn't matter the high aims and the extraordinary potential you have. If you dwell in sin, it is a spiritual sickness that robs you of your potential and steals your life. Amen. Amen. Do you know how the Bible defines sin? It comes from James 4.17. It's not how the church defines sin. The church says, hey man, you're drinking, you're smoking. Uh, if you come from a church like us, they say, are you listening to that devil music? You know? Are you watching R-rated movies? This is how we define sin. Do you know how the Bible defines sin? James 4.17 says, oh, it's on the screen. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, he sins. Is that not an incredibly convicting scripture? How many of you know better than you are actually living? How many of you are convinced of the right way but are not walking in the way that you are convinced of? Really couldn't hide it from the priest. 
the priest's job. By the way, a priest, a priest in the Old Testament, is he's not a, a strangely effeminate man with a, a, a funny collar. His shirt's not on backwards. What happens with a priest is your own firstborn child was supposed to belong to the Lord. Every firstborn child. Who in here has a firstborn son? Oh my goodness, on the day that child is born, belong to the Lord. What would it mean to belong to the Lord? He would go work at the temple in the Lord's service. But you know what? God gave, gave Israel an out. He said, in the place of your firstborn son, we will take Levites. You read about this in Numbers 5 and Numbers 8. But the numbers must be proportional. And if there is a difference, you will pay in silver for the difference. Because the priesthood comes at a great price. It has to cost you something. So every single Israelite related to a priest, not as a strange, iconic religious figure because of his garb, but as a family member whose job was to expect their life and then mediate between them and God. Is this what you want from a priesthood? Someone to inspect your life? Let me, let me just ask you a hypothetical question. Pastor Pedro, right? He's coming to your house tonight. Is there anything that you put in the back of the cabinet? Is there any closets that you want to shut the doors? Do you even warn your children to stay off of certain subjects? Who would you be fooling? The man I had to throw out of church, I asked how he was doing all the time. He had the same answer you do. Fine. Why do we think we're fine when we're dying? Why do we think we're fine when we have a life-threatening Illness. Well, it's because it's what we're trained to say from the time we're born. How you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm great. How are you? Liars. If we knew our conditions, then we could at least beg, cry out to, and show trust in a heavenly word revealed. When's the last time you heard from heaven? I hope you do this morning. Turn with me to Leviticus 14. I once told a pastor that used to meet with us in Starbucks. Let me say it this way. Matthew and I would show up in Starbucks when they opened. We would be praying, drinking coffee, obviously, reading the word. And this pastor would show up and he liked to mock us. He'd say, oh, what are y'all going to sing today? Oh, let me guess. You don't know, right? You're going to be led by the Spirit. What are you going to preach today? Oh, let me guess. You don't know yet. So one time I was ready for him. I had, I had the scripture I was going to preach from. He said, so what are you going to preach from today? I said, the book of Leviticus. He goes, <laughs> no, really, what are you going to preach from? How could we look at God's word that way? But you know what? He is so trained, so used to get to the good stuff. Tell me all about grace. Tell me how there's icing on my cake. Tell me how wonderful I am. Tell me about empowerment. Tell me I'm a champion. Everything is right. I want to have my best life. 
He's so used to that that the thought that we would honestly examine our lives, that we might actually consider changing, was a foreign thing to him. He was particularly interested, though, in how my wife wore her hair and whether or not she wore blue jeans. He told me there needed to be a line of delineation in the church. Y'all having problems telling who the men and women are in here? Okay, then we have our line of delineation. Are you in Leviticus 14? Yes, sir. The time has left. Leviticus 14, what does it say about your title? Cleansing of lepers. Cleansing of lepers. You know, this is a uniquely New Testament phenomenon. We're going to read how it's done. And God did spit in Miriam's face and she got leprosy. This is before the law is actually given. And Naaman, Naaman of Syria, he was cleansed of leprosy. But there was no Israelite during the time period from Moses on the mountain till the ministry of Jesus that was cleansed of leprosy. And yet the instructions are here. I mean, you guys are theologians, am I missing one? When we get Miriam out of the way, not the right time period. When we get Naaman out of the way, not an Israelite. Am I missing someone? So is there a chapter of the Bible then that is irrelevant for thousands of years? Well, I mean, in some seminaries they say yes. Actually, Corinthians 12 through 14 has been irrelevant in many seminaries for a couple thousand years. Sad, I don't think that the Holy Ghost put this in his precious book simply to trick Israel. Let's read how you get cleansed from leprosy. Am I the only one that thinks it's possible to have a spiritual form of leprosy? You speak to me this morning. Am I lying or am I telling the truth? Say lie or truth. Lie or truth. truth. offering the guilt offering belongs 
to the priest, it is most holy. The priest is to take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Come on, say it with me, big toe. It's probably the first time you ever said that in church. You know, physical therapy books. Books on anatomy for physical therapy students and occupational therapy students. They don't call it the big toe. They don't call it the Tito. They call it the great toe. And there's a reason. They've seen Piro's foot. <laughs> they call it, Matthew would wear a size 7 if it were not for that great toe. He's in a size 13 because of that one toe. The great toe is called the great toe because if you remove it from a foot, a man needs serious training to walk. It's like walking on a peg. You don't realize the way in which that toe contributes to your balance until it's gone. Now, in our movie-laden society, after watching Meet the Parents many times through the years, you know about opposable thumbs. If you do not have your thumb, you have a hard time doing something like swinging an axe, using a screwdriver. You certainly don't want a surgeon that has no thumbs. The lobe of your right ear. Right in the Bible is the side that the sheep are on. At the separation of the sheep and goats, you go as a sheep and take your place on the right side of God. All the real problems in life, Charlie, come from the left. Why does God say, if you want to be cleansed of leprosy, start with the right ear lobe? He wants to make sure that every word that you hear is filtered through the sacrifice. This is why the New Testament tells us, take every thought captive to your knowledge of Christ. We are to make our thoughts obedient at the point that they are entering our body. Oh, if you could hear from God, says, what would he say? By the blood of Jesus, you have the ability to hear from God. If you're willing to be honest about your life and do what he tells you, there's no limit to what he will tell you. And that doesn't matter whether you slept under a bridge last night or whether you have the nicest house in this congregation. He is no respecter of persons. If you are covered in His blood, He will speak to you despite what the theologian says. Why would you anoint the thumb on the right hand? In all of a man's workings, everything that he does with his hand, the strength that it needs to flow out of the crucifixion of Christ. Why do you live? Why do you still have breath? Why do you wake up one more day? Solomon said it right. It is all meaningless except the pursuit of holiness. So then in our hearing, in our working, and in the strength of our walking, holy from head to to toe covered in blood. 
By the way, how many of you in here are left-handed? It's a minority. You're a special group. It was a left-handed man who once told me that more geniuses are left-handed. Are you at red? Of course he was left-handed. The average man on the planet is right-handed. It is his strength. Where does your strength flow from? Anybody in here that is right-handed want to throw a football to me left-handed in front of everyone? Stop. Strange, isn't it? Very few of you are ambidextrous. You can write with either hand. But most people, if you have to sign a check with your left hand, you're going to have to get somebody to witness that signature. <laughs> Where does the strength of your life flow from? Could your life be defined from something you heard from God? Could your life be defined by what you're doing out of all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength for God? Could your life's path be determined? Looking backwards, can you say, I am where I am right now because of a relentless pursuit of the cross of Christ. Because this is what it means to live like the Ephesians who stood up to the Domitians of their day. We have a church that says that we stand up, but in reality we love everything that they love. There's nothing to fight for. No distinction. But when the strength of our hearing, strength of our working, and strength of our walking is based upon the cross, it'll change everything. You have people who suddenly are not living for their 401ks. Look at verse 15. The priest shall then, come on, say shall then. Shall then. It's not Kung Fu, it's not a shall then. Shall then. Shall then. This means that after, immediately after someone has received blood on their earlobe, blood on their thumb, and blood on their great toe, they shall then, after that, they get something else. The priest shall then take some of the log of oil, pour it in the palm of his own left hand, dip his right forefinger into the oil in the palm of his hand, and with his fingers sprinkle some of it before the Lord seven times. The priest is to put some of the oil remaining in his palm on the lobe of his right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, and on the top of the blood of the guilt offering. Friends, the church is seeking the oil without having been anointed in the blood. This is the prophecy that our brother told us about from Azusa Street. We are seeking gifts from God without seeking the holiness of God. We're exalting power in our services beyond purity. The heart of God is that every area of your life would be wrapped up in the holiness that comes from being crucified with Christ and dead to sin. And then He anoints a life like that because you no longer live for yourself. You live for the glory of God. I recently read about a rap star who said that he lives for the glory of God and he frequents strip clubs. It's in the same Charisma Magazine article. He's not, he sees no contradiction in this. And why would he? 
serve a holy God who wants a holy people and He will accept nothing less than that. And friends, you cannot get there on your own. If I've learned anything, it's that man has no power over sin. None. Zero. Zilch. It must be given from above. Yeah. And He will not pour His oil on you, His power, His anointing, until you have sufficiently been crucified with Christ. Oh, you may get lots of warm fuzzy, but you will receive no freedom from sin. Is there anybody that wants to get free? I need to tell you, out of all the peculiarities, do you know that I love the Older Testament? Can you tell? I preach from it more than I preach from anything else. And that's not a Sunday morning thing. It's a Wednesday night thing. It's 39 books of the 66 fall under what we call the Older Covenant. How can I not preach on it two-thirds of the time? It's God's revelation. Reading the New Testament is like the icing on the cake. It's the cherry on the top of the sundae. After having absorbed everything else, this is like the exclamation point. In all of God's revelation to an entire nation that they lived out before the world, there's only two kinds of people that got anointed with blood on their ears, thumbs, and toes. Only two. And the first is a leper. Who else would you expect to be in that group? If I say, hey, we have apple, 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 what do you expect next? It's not a pine cone, friends. You would fail the test. Turn with me to Leviticus 8. Actually, put it on the screen. Leviticus 8.22. He then presented the other ram, the ram for the ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on his head. Moses slaughtered the ram and took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. What a strange thing to connect in the Bible. The head of the Aaronic priesthood and all of his sons would be anointed with blood on their ears, thumbs, and big toes, and only on the right side. Why did he put it on the lepers? What was the chapter title? Terrence, you had it. What was the chapter title of 14? <clears throat> Cleansing the lepers. Do you mean to tell me that you can have leprosy, but if you will allow God to baptize your hearing in the crucifixion of Christ, baptize your working in the crucifixion of Christ, baptize your walking in the crucifixion of Christ, you can receive exactly the same thing that a priest that never got leprosy could receive. Only two people in all of the Bible ever received this anointing. One was a leper and the other was a priest. Apparently our God will take lepers and make them priests. Amen. Amen. Glory to God. Of course, you would have to know and admit you were a leper. Yeah. How would you know and admit you're a leper? Well... Everyone would shun your camp. You would stand outside the camp. No godly person would stand next to you. Maybe this is why the church has such an identity crisis. We no longer treat sin like sin. We look at a man committed to a sinful way, has no intention of changing his sinful life, and we say, Jesus accepts you as you are. And I say, what a lie. 
He accepts you no matter what you've done, provided that you are willing to change. Amen. He does not accept you any way that you come and stay. That is a lie meant to fill altars so someone could look important. But it is not true. You don't believe me? Turn in your Bibles. Find the book of Corinthians. The first chapter of Corinthians <laughs> says that you're blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. So apparently they were Christians. But by the time we get to the sixth chapter and the ninth verse, it says this. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral. By the way, how many times do you have to look at pornography before you are sexually immoral? Once. <laughs> nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy. Good Lord, we just threw out half of everybody that calls themselves a Christian. Why do we give in church? Because the Lord will give back to us. Why do we support missions? Because if we give back to you, press down and shake it over. Is that not appealing to your greed? Why do you do it? Because it's the right thing to do. If God never did another thing for you, it would still be the right thing to do. Why do you serve Jesus for the next blessing? No, because it's the right thing to do. We've twisted, seek first the kingdom and everything will be added to you into a scripture that says everything will be added to you, just seek the kingdom. And that is not what he said. Amen. We seek the kingdom because it's the right thing to do no matter what happens. Amen. The fact that he blesses you is like I see. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers. I was working in an industry the first time that I read that that is generally associated with swindlers. I dropped to my knees in my office. I stared at the verse. And I said, oh God, don't let me be a swindler. He said, don't be a swindler. <laughs> this work. Oh, it's pretty easy. You walk in the fruit of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. Just because you're a salesman does not mean you have to lie to people, even if everybody else is. We actually got to the place where my sales manager lied to me because he knew that I would not knowingly tell a lie. That brought us to an end of employment. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead and He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute. That word could be anything that is worldly. 
We do not even have a word in English to translate the way Paul would have said this if he said it in Hebrew. Now we have it recorded in Greek and I don't want to give the linguistics lesson today. But if he said it in Hebrew and somebody wrote it in Greek, if that were possible, just indulge me for a moment. It would be the strongest negation possible in the Hebrew language. The, the closest word that you can get in Biblical Hebrew to a curse word. Some translations say, heavens no. Others say, heavens forbid. NIV chose never. In Hebrew, it would be halal. It, it means like, may we all be cursed if that were true. <laughs> you cannot join yourself to the world and call yourself a Christian. This is Christianity 101, even if it is not taught anywhere but in fact. I'm telling you that the day is coming in the body of Christ where His fire will burn so brightly that He will expose all who do not sincerely walk in the crucifixion of Christ. Hallelujah. And it will separate sheep from goats, just as His Word has said. Turn with me to the book of Judges. I said that we would start there. What else did I say? Does that encourage you? I'm liking you more all the time, Terrence. Get to the first chapter of Judges. Now, wisdom would say, Pastor, you're about to leave for a few weeks. Encourage the body. Encourage the body. Pepper them. Your parents have relied on you when you went to the This is going to be mildly discomforting. This is going to stink a little. Because if they told you the truth, they're scared you wouldn't go. Right? I said, this is going to hurt terribly. You're going to cry and it's going to be hard for me to watch. We don't tell our kids that, do we? And our pastors are the same way. We don't tell the body what God really expects. Instead, we take it as our prerogative to dress it up. We take it upon ourselves to make sure that it's encouraged. Tell me if you can find such language from Jesus. Tell me if you can find a single response from Jesus that you could picture coming from the pulpit of a mega assembly. It wouldn't stay mega long. How do you know that? Because he could feed 5,000 on one day and end up with only one standing at the foot of the cross. Jesus was not interested in gathering masses of people for the sake of having masses of people. And when he did gather them, he went over them. He wants those who know that they're lepers and want to become priests. Every parable he told is aimed at that subject. Every one. Everything that he did is aimed at that subject. He even looked at men who would not admit their spiritual leprosy and said, I didn't come for the healthy. He's pretty blunt. In the book of Judges, the first sentence says, after the death of Joshua. Oh my goodness. After the death of Yahweh's salvation. Joshua, Hoshia, is essentially the same word as Yeshua. You've probably heard that because you've been in church. What happens after the death of Jesus? 
Do we just go live our best life now? Is every day a payday? What happens after the death of Jesus? The Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? It seems that even after Joshua, the Lord, Lord, Pastor Prince, even after the death of Joshua, the Israelites knew there was work to do. We have not arrived in the fullness of the kingdom. It has been declared that we are not there. It's declared it's living in my heart. The promise is there. But I do not yet see everything subject to Jesus. So there is work to do. It seems that even the ancient Israelites understood this. The difference between standing at the foot of the promised land and reigning over all of it. You know, there is a time that Solomon reigned the promised land. He wrote to Hiram and he said, hey, every adversary is underfoot. You can read about that in 2 Kings. He appointed 12 provincial governors to govern the kingdom. This was a type of the millennial reign that we are most certainly not standing in. Look around you, there's war. There is work to be done before we get there. How can we cross our arms and act like there's nothing to be done? Because we're preoccupied with the work. Our leprosy demands it. It requires it. They said, who's the first to go up and fight? That's a question we could ask in the church body. Who is getting ready? Who wants to go and fight? How many of you are content to cross your arms and sit and wave across the battlefield at Goliath? Who will be the first to go and fight? Silent as a church mouth swat. Sure. People, I'm sorry to leave the church in this state when I leave. 202 chairs. Who will be the first to go and fight? A cricket. With the bird's nest back there making noise. <laughs> See, if you understood that you were born for contention with the enemy and that you do not have time for leprosy, you'd be back in the chairs. I told you, some will hear this message today and you will sincerely, gut-wrenchingly evaluate your life ask heaven to change. Others will just continue to lie to yourself. The battle's already won. All the work is done. Is it payday yet? There's plenty of pastors that will encourage you in that life. <coughs> Verse 2. The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. God has proclaimed that a people will inherit his land. In the reality, in the natural realm, this people, the first tribe, is Judah. It means praise. It's the term by which we have derived the word Jew. The chosen people of God. You want to know who is going to inherit the kingdom? Those who are the praise of God, not those who are spiritual lovers. We learned... In the book of Corinthians, who cannot inherit the kingdom? Here we find out who will fight for and then inherit the kingdom. Judah is to go first. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, who is the brother of the man who praises God? Simeon means he who hears from God. It turns out that praising God leads to hearing from God. It 
opens the pathway to hear from the Lord. Think back, those of you that are actually born again. Where were you standing when you were born again? Was it in the holy place of God in the highest heavens? Or was it in a dark and nasty place on the earth? See, I was standing in the midst of my sin, just as Romans 5.8 says. And he demonstrated his love to me while standing in that place. Yes. Yes. And it was immediately evidenced because sin was broken in me and praises started to come up. Amen. Yes. yes. My mother is here in my life. The whole world could see it, could they not? When you are born of the substance of heaven, it is not something to be guessed at. It's not something a preacher told you or some fool at an altar pronounced over you. If heaven didn't do the work, then it will not stand before the heavens. Are you the product of some man who was a leper himself promising you freedom? They cannot give you what they do not have. To know our condition, and to ask the heavens for heavenly change will make you the praise of God. Amen. But let us not pretend to be the praise of God before the change has happened. This is what it is to be crushed in your spirit. is to understand your state and long for something more. Amen. I was so fed up with my state that I briefly considered suicide. There's always a counterfeit before the reality. Always. This is why a fifth of the world's population worshiped a punchy old man rather than the king of kings. Will you be satisfied with weak substitutes when you can have the reality? Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, praising God and hearing from God, come up with us into the territory allotted to us. It has been allotted, friends. It belongs to you. If you knew that your house was off of Sweetwater Boulevard and you had the title to it in your name, how long would you let someone sit in it and call it theirs? How guilty would you have to be to not show up and take what is yours? You'd have to be pretty deep in sin and guilt not to go get your house, wouldn't you? The Lord has prepared a place for us in the presence of His Father. How deep do we have to be in sin and guilt not to go get it? Come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. This ministry is founded upon an idea. It's not enough for one man to have a vision. We must join each other in our visions. The reason we close a Monday night meeting and we go with submission ministries to the third ward is because the kingdom will never be accomplished under the purview of one man, one ministry, or one church. Amen. Rome is wrong. It'll take every one of us turning from our natural state. Being born again and changed into a heavenly state. Joining together, praising together, hearing together. It takes a body. No wonder the devil, the prince of the power of the air, works so hard to keep you 
from being in churches where you can actually hear from God. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands. And they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him. This is such an interesting text. Adonai is the name of the Lord. It's the preferred name among Hebrew-speaking people to call God. His other name is so holy that they dare not mention it. But Adonai means Lord, owner, controller. This man's name is Adonai. But he's not the Lord. He's not the owner and the controller. His name is Adonai Bezek. If he's not the Lord, but he's named the Lord, then we could call him a false Lord, couldn't we? Yeah. An anti-Lord. Yeah. Bezek means lightning. Is that a little coincidence, you think? The false god of lightning was in the land that was allotted to God's people. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled. Stand firm. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him. How many of you are devil chasers? Oh my goodness, we spent all of our time running from him. I say turn on your former master. Yeah. Take a lesson from Spartacus. Put the sword to him. Amen. Start with your life. Then help others get free. Amen. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him. And did what? Cut off his thumbs and big toes. That seems cruel. I wonder if they have a reason. Then Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings. 70 is the number of the nations that Israel says is in the world. 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. The false god of lightning wants to reduce you to a dog, begging for the scraps he gives you under his table. Not able to hear from God, not able to work for God, not able to walk with God. Simply a lap dog to the prince of the power of the air. And he's done it to most. He's done it to men in every nation of the world. So God raises up a new species. He raises up a new nation. Those formerly lepers, now priests, with an anointing that he cannot cut off. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. If you still love the life that you came from, then you cannot pay back the devil for what he did to you. 1 John 3.8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. We cannot be with Jesus destroying the work that we love. Oh, church, we need to repent. We were born for so much more than this. How can we live like a leper when we were meant to liberate the world? We were meant to bring freedom. We were meant to chase devils. Not be chased by them and live like them and love them. Make peace treaties with them. 
they brought him to Jerusalem. And he died there. Just like Haman. Just like Adonai Bezek. Just like the Antichrist and the false prophet, they will meet their end in Jerusalem. Because my Lord got there first. And he provided for you something. An anointing on your ear. An anointing on your hand. An anointing on your foot. So that you could love him with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And put an end to devils that are cutting off the toes and ears and big toes of kings. He didn't do it to the peasants. Who did he do it to? The kings. The devil is interested in making you less than what God called you to be. Are you working with him or against him? Oh, with him or against him, saints? That is the question. If we're going to destroy the devil's work, we can no longer participate in it. Some of your lives are little more than bones. When a man doesn't eat, he becomes skin and bones. When you're young, you struggle not to put on weight. When you're old, you often struggle to hang on to weight. As the body dies, the flesh is just decaying. It happens. God called us to be priests. Living like a leper makes you die faster than you should. Kills something inside of you. It hardens the heart so you you can't even feel the Lord anymore. I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times, Pastor. I don't seem to feel what you all feel, and I don't know why. Hebrews tells us sin hardens the heart. Yes. Yes. Thinking on the patriarchs in Genesis 50, you do not have to turn there. I rarely lie when I preach. Joseph said, I'm going to die. Don't you bury me in this man. You carry my bones with me to the place, with you to the place the Lord has given us. Friends, you may be nothing left in the kingdom but skin and bones. But God is able to restore you. Amen. Early in 2 Kings, around the 5th chapter, 4th chapter, Second chapter in Greek. Second Kings, the second chapter. We have a story about Elijah and Elisha. Elijah had done so many miracles. He was the hero of Israel. Has anybody read about Elijah? Yeah. Yes. Oh my God, what a man to look up to. Yes. Yes. The heavens answered him with fire, with water. He could hold down the like one of those independent prophets. Now, theologians count his miracles in various ways. A guy in Phineas Day likes to make lists, so he counts 16 miracles. By my count, I see seven, okay? But Phineas is, his insight into the word is probably just greater than mine. It's funny, it doesn't matter how you count them, though. Whether you count seven miracles or 16 miracles or 15 or something less, if you use the same standard, when you're counting Elijah's miracles, you're going to come to a number. And whatever that number is, it's an amazing thing, because in the second chapter of 2 Kings, a promise is given to Elisha, his successor. 
is you will have twice the anointing, a double fold anointing, than your father Elijah had. Yes, The most disappointing thing happens in the Bible. It doesn't matter what standard you use if you apply the same standard. In other words, if miraculous speech is a miracle, then you use that equally for both. If it's not a miracle but only defined the law of nature is a miracle, as long as you use the same standard, you always come up one short of exactly twice with Elijah. What I'm saying is this. If you have seven miracles with Elijah, with Elisha, you end up with 13. And it's disappointing. You're like, what's wrong? Could the Lord not pull it off? How did this happen? You promised double and we got so close. Did he sin? Was his sin bigger than you, Lord? What happened? And then you get to 2 Kings 13. Second Kings 13, verse 20. Elijah died and was buried. End of story, right? Now, Moabite raiders used to enter that country every spring. Once, while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders. So they threw the man's body into Elijah's tomb. When the body touched Elijah's bones, yes. the man came to life and stood up on his feet. Heard you might be so far gone that you're beyond the leper, you're just a bag of bones. But I'm telling you that if it takes a resurrection from the dead, our Lord is able to bring life even out of your bones. Amen. You don't believe me read the book of Ezekiel. He can take a valley of bones and make it a nation of priests and warriors. The problem is not with God's ability to come through. It's with your ability to respond. Amen. 